Thank you for listening to this Podcast One Sportsnet production, available on Apple Podcasts and Podcast One. The AP Top 25 College Football Podcast is presented by Regions Bank. Hello and welcome to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm Ralph Russo, college football writer with the Associated Press. My guest this week is Adam Rittenberg from ESPN. Adam and I ran into each other at USC last week, and we both wrote about what's going on with the Trojans, so we'll talk about that. And what's up with Michigan after, wow, just an awful performance by the Wolverines. We'll touch on the unusual news out of Houston concerning quarterback De'Ara King and take a look at a developing second, maybe third tier of playoff contenders. Thanks for listening to the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. You can find us on Podcast One. You can find us on Apple Podcasts. Just about anywhere you get your podcasts. Please subscribe, and if so inclined, please give us a good review. It helps college football fans find us and helps us find more college football fans. And away we go. Joining me this week on the podcast, Adam Rittenberg from ESPN, the great national college football writer. Adam and I ran into each other recently at USC last week. We both uh, clearly had similar assignments because I think we both wrote similar stories in the last couple of days. So I wanted to start there. Adam, first, thanks for joining me. I appreciate your time. Oh, absolutely, Ralph. Good to be with you. It was always great seeing you at a game last week in L.A. Yeah, it was an interesting game and an interesting simply day to be at USC, right? I mean, I, again, I think we both had the similar impressions and and had you know similar takes on what was going on there last Friday. But I wanted to get your impressions of the day and where USC could be headed and why. Because I think that you, I think unless you're on the ground at USC or you're close to USC, it sort of puts a little different perspective on the Clay Helton situation, where they might be going with their coaching search if it gets to that point, and, and, and again, tying it into everything else that's going on at USC these days. No doubt. And you were there all week. I just kind of flew in for the game. But obviously it was a big, important day on Friday for a number of reasons. You know, namely the inauguration of the new university president, Carol Foltz, coming in from North Carolina you know, as an outsider. And it was very clear, and obviously you were at the inauguration, that she's there to clean up a mess. I mean, that's what's going on here. So it's important in the context of Clay Helton and USC football and the record on the field that people need to realize there's a lot of other things going on around this university and around this athletic program because of the scandal that they've been mired in, both university and athletic department, in the last uh, year or so. And that's why you have a new president, and that's, you know, that's on her priority list. That's, that, that, those, those are, the, those are the, uh, the, the big you know, issues that she's pushing for. So, um, you know, obviously you had Reggie Bush coming back to the Coliseum in a working capacity you know, after his disassociation from the program from the, from the NCAA back in 2010. He was there for Fox. Obviously, Urban Meyer was there. And so that created a really unique scene before a game uh, with, with Utah. And even after the game, even after USC won, you know, there was a little interaction between Clay Helton and Urban Meyer as he was leaving the field. So definitely a good day to be at USC. But I think, you know, just in the context of Helton, who, again, 
He's got you know, two, two pretty good wins or one really good win at home now over Utah, but their schedule doesn't let up the next couple of games. I just think, though, that their new president and the, the priorities right now are you know, how do we clean up this department? Who do we find as the athletic director? And then we'll ultimately worry about Clay Helton. And you and I, Ralph, had a, a pretty similar sentiment leaving uh, L.A. on Friday is that, you know, of all the things that Carol Fold has to address, all the problems that have either been there or are still there with USC, we don't think that Clay Helton is that high on the list. I mean, you, you can certainly complain about the record and, and some of the shortcomings of the USC program, at least last year, under his leadership, but he's conducted himself with class. He's always been positive. He loves USC. He doesn't embarrass the university. And that should stand for some, something when you're, you're a president who's trying to, to deal with problems. Uh, you know, Clay Elton, in, in a sense, has not been a problem for USC. Right. And it, you can't help but put that towards the last three or four coaches at USC, which liter- who were literally bringing credibility and integrity issues. Now, we can right. argue about what happened with Pete Carroll and, and some of the NCAA stuff. But nonetheless, he left town under a cloud of NCAA issues. And then, of course, Lane and Steve Sarkeesian have their issues. So Clay was brought in or hired as the interim to sort of bring peace and professionalism and a certain amount of no drama aspect to his personality to that program. And he has done that. He has not won at the level that they need. But it is, it's odd and ironic, which is what I wrote, that at a time when USC is trying to reestablish its integrity and incredibility, the one coach that they have had over the last 10 years that has both of those things might get fired. Exactly. And that's, um, you know, and, and he has done that. Uh, but, you know, as you know, as someone who's covered the sport for a long time, like I have, your people still want more. And, and you know, if they, they, they expect to win at a higher level and do it with integrity, ideally, but there's definitely a, uh, one that's ahead of the other for a lot of people. And, you know, and then you throw Urban Meyer into this, who's, you know, at the top of the wish list for a lot of people there, but has some credibility issues, quite frankly, after what happened at Ohio State and even, uh, you know, at Florida at his previous stops. And, and for a, a new president from the outside, a female president, are there, are there going to be any hangups there if, if Urban Meyer is indeed interested in this position? So it, it's a very unique time. You know, for for these reasons, because you have a coach who, like like you said, hasn't embarrassed the school uh, and has uh, has been. I think we all, we both agree the most successful coach that they've had since Pete Carroll winning the Pac-12, winning the the Rose Bowl the, the year before in, in 2016, and then they you know they have a year last year which was kind of disastrous, and then this year it's it's kind of too soon to tell. But uh, there, there's a feeling that you know USC should be the dominant program on the West Coast. And they haven't been. So can Clay Helton ultimately get them there? Is this year going to be a step uh, towards being that again? If not, I still think they're going to come down to a tough decision because, uh, you know, is, is Urban Meyer worth it ultimately for, for Carol Fultz in that school? Or is someone else worth it? Or is the guy that they have in place capable of, of getting it done and, and restoring that dominance? Because, you know, just being at the, in that stadium, and I know it wasn't full and it's not the USC of the the mid 2000s under Pete Carroll, but you can just sense the potential there. It still is a special place. It's a place with incredible history, incredible tradition, and you know they they should be at or near the top. 
Right. And the interesting backdrop, of course, to this is there's no doubt that because the the rest of the Pac-12 is not particularly fierce that USC and Helton, Helton could win enough games to force his way into the not, not force his way, but to put the USC into a position where it would be almost impossible to fire him. I think they are talented enough. And again, with the rest of the Pac-12 not necessarily being particularly fierce, they are talented enough to put to put USC in that position. Let me ask you one quick thing about the AD hire. I don't know how much you've been hearing about it. I mean, to me, it sounds like the master plan was to almost introduce a new AD at the time that Swan stepped down. Like they had hoped to almost have things locked up, trade one for the other. So they are clearly behind. They're absolutely behind. Have you heard anything, you know, rumblings about my sense is, is this could get done fairly soon. Again, only because I say this because they are behind and now they have the inauguration behind them that maybe this could get done in the next couple of weeks. I mean, they really need to get this done soon. Are you hearing anything along the lines of timetable and who, you know, there's been some names out there, but what names could possibly be involved? Well, yeah, there's a couple of elements here. I completely agree with you and I've heard the same thing that they wanted to have this AD in place, but you also had a number of prominent people pass on the job. So you're not you know, in, in your A-list per se, as far as candidates go. Uh, so, you know, one thing I did hear, and, and I haven't heard this confirmed, you, maybe you have, is, is that they were looking into the idea of using a search firm to, to help them and expedite and ultimately make this higher uh, because, like you said, it is important to get it right, A, but also, B, to have this person in place relatively quickly as, you know, the, the sports season is upon us, football year is upon us, obviously the academic year also is going on. So there's definitely some urgency uh, to, to do it there. Now, in terms of who, who Carol Fult goes with, it's going to be very interesting because, as we've talked about, uh, you know, USC has this pattern of hiring within the family, um, and they've done this for decades and decades. And I guess sometimes it's worked out. Oftentimes it hasn't really worked out. But now you have a president who's clearly an outsider. You're coming in from North Carolina. This is not somebody who has uh, deep ties to USC or anything. So you would think that she would be more inclined to hire somebody from outside the family, you know, an athletic director who doesn't have those obvious long-term uh, ties to, to USC you know, so will she do that or not? I guess that's the question that I have. And and if not, you know, if she does go with somebody who's connected to USC, uh, yeah, I know the Villanova athletic director has been brought up because he was there as an administrator and obviously had uh, you know, a lot of connections to the football program under Pete Carroll. But I, I tend to think it's going to be an outsider, Ralph. What do you think? Well, a lot of the names you, you're hearing now, um, after sort of those A-listers like Radakovich and, and such. who sort of, Yeah, and Cunningham have been – though somebody did say, you know, maybe Bubba would have a different perspective if the job wasn't filled. You know what I'm saying? Like I think that some of these A-listers might have been a little turned off by the idea that they were being offered or a job was being dangled that wasn't empty yet, that wasn't vacated yet. So there is that one theory. A lot of Pac-12 folks, right? Jen Cohen from Washington, who has a really good relationship with Chris Peterson. So I don't know if she would want to give that up. She's a Washington person. Uh, Rob Mullins from you, uh, from excuse me, from Oregon. Uh, Patrick Chun from Washington State, who I, be- I believe has some USC ties in his background. I don't have his resume in front of me here, but not necessarily like a deep USC history. The other thing I- I've also heard there is they're not using a 
traditional search firm, but there are folks with sort of USC ties who are active in that world who are helping with the search. So what does that mean? I, you know, I don't know exactly what that means. So it's almost like, hey, maybe we're saving a couple of bucks by not necessarily actually hiring a search firm, but we have people who can do the same job for us. I would tend to believe that it might be someone from the West Coast. Uh, Rick George from Colorado's name has also come up, though. I haven't heard that he would necessarily be interested in the job. So I also wouldn't be particularly surprised if a name that we haven't even talked about at all or hasn't been hasn't been reported at all pops out of nowhere. I think that's where they are at this point. I think it could be almost anyone. I did see in the press box, Ralph, I, don't, I took a picture of this. I, I was tempted to tweet it that, um, that you know, you had uh, Pat Hayden and Lynn Swan's pictures on the wall of the press box. And between them is Keyshawn Johnson. So clearly, <laughs> I'm going to start that that rumor as the as the next AD at USC. So we'll leave USC behind for now. The last part of this sort of review part of the podcast, because we're going to do a little review, a little preview, look looking forward, looking back. Is I, I don't think we can move on from last week without talking a little bit about what happened with Michigan. And you know, I almost my initial tweet over the what happened at Camp Randall last Saturday was, of course what is going on with Michigan, and immediately I had Wisconsin fans or two like pushing back on me, like, hey, what about us? Like, don't forget us. So an acknowledgement that Wisconsin looks like a juggernaut. I mean, they have playing really well. I do not dismiss that Wisconsin is playing really well and looks like it looks like last year was the anomaly. Last year was the outlier and they are back to being what they have been over the last, you know, 7 or 8 years. So, with that aside, for the first time I feel like Michigan is heading in the wrong direction or it's not just people nitpicking Harbaugh or trying to find the flaws. Like something seems amiss there that is more than just, hey, you know, we all hate Harbaugh, so let's pile on Harbaugh. What what are your thoughts on where Michigan goes from here? It it was stunning, at least to me, uh, to see the result and the fact that they came off of an open week. I know that's uh, that's overused and not always a great correlator, but but you know, essentially, you had some time to, to rest and regroup after a shaky win over Army at home in overtime, and to come out and perform like that is alarming. And to say some of the things after the game that some of the Michigan players were saying, uh, I think was alarming. Jim Harbaugh, to his credit, I think both after the game and then on Monday at his weekly press conference was consistent in saying, "Listen, I, it's my fault. Uh, I take full responsibility. It was a complete failure on our parts. It's a, not a banner day for Michigan. A to Z." Uh, there were there were problems, and uh, but I mean he's got to be a bit stunned at this stage because you know Michigan doesn't have I think the most talent in the conference uh, this year. It's Ohio State, and they may not have the second most talent in the conference, but they, they're talented enough uh, and supposedly well coached enough to not ever perform like that and fall behind thirty five to nothing and just really look out of sorts. And so you know it, it's a really important moment in Jim Harbaugh's tenure. Uh, right now because if they don't get this thing turned around you know the Ohio State game will have significance but maybe only for a you know rivalry uh, uh, the the revenge factor not so much playing for anything of significance as far as the Big Ten championship with the East Division and that's the problem for Michigan is that you have you know this perpetuated they can't win the big game they can't win the big game on the road uh, you know, especially against ranked opponents, they 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 just kind of crater every time they leave Ann Arbor against anyone of any significance, whether it's 
a team like Wisconsin or Iowa uh, or Ohio State or Penn State or it's a bowl game, uh, which, you know, shouldn't be that intimidating. And they've just struggled in some of those environments. So, you know, it's uh, I just talking to people around the program or people that have observed that there's there's kind of a number of different layers here. There's the personnel layer. There's the scheme layer. We can always talk about Josh Gaddis and the new offense and some of the struggles that have been going on there. But then there's this sort of macro issue of, you know, program that hasn't won a Big Ten title in 14 years, program that hasn't beaten Ohio State since 2011, and I'd argue hasn't beaten an Ohio State team of any significance for much, much longer than that. Ohio State was, was unusually mediocre because of some things that were going on in 2011. And then now you under Harbaugh, you have these repeated big game failures away from home. That's something that's hard to break. Uh, it's kind of in the back of your minds, whether even if you want to try to block it out. And I think the, the big concern for Michigan, this is what they really have to guard against, is it's, I think anger is okay. I think resignation is the problem. And I think there's probably some people, Michigan fans, and people around that program right now that are a little resigned that, hey, maybe this isn't going to work out with Harbaugh and how much longer until we're actually winning championships again. Yeah, you sort of move into that existential crisis phase where it starts, and even I have been tempted to ask the question, if Harbaugh can't get this done there, then who can? Yeah. Then then is this something that is the flaw inherent now in Michigan? Is Michigan moving into a place where Nebraska has found itself where you don't have the natural recruiting base anymore? And listen, I understand Michigan, the state of Michigan produces a lot more players than the state of Nebraska, so we're not necessarily at that level, but nonetheless, less there are less players being produced in Michigan Michigan is more has to rely more on national recruiting than it did in, in its heydays back in the 70s and 80s and in the heydays have been a really long time ago so uh, you start picking at fundamental issues within the structure of how Michigan can be successful and it becomes more than just a question about coaching and one particular person that's where your mind goes I'm not saying that Michigan is there but I think that's where you start like when you start pulling the lens back and taking a 30,000 foot look at this it's hard not to say okay what is going on here beyond just maybe Harbaugh is not as good as as we thought he was that said a lot of season ahead Things could turn around for Michigan. But I will say this. I think it's fair to sort of ask this question. I can't imagine in any way Michigan ever firing Jim Harbaugh, <laughs> considering all it took to get Jim Harbaugh. But for some reason, I can because Harbaugh is such a, an odd personality, a, a bit of an odd duck, come to a point where maybe Harbaugh says, this is not working here for us. And my university deserves better, so I'm going to try something else. You know, he's never stayed at a place longer than he has with Michigan currently. So I know it's hard to sort of project the crystal ball here and see where this goes. It really is hard to figure out where this is heading. But if if I ask you to guess where this might be heading, is there ever a way where Harbaugh and, and Michigan divorce and it not feel like a weird situation or not be and, and just make a clean break? I mean, there's always that possibility. I, I just think in some ways they're stuck with each other. Michigan's stuck with Harbaugh because of who he is, and certainly the contract he has makes it uh, difficult for them to, to fire him outright. And I think Harbaugh's stuck with Michigan because imagine if he leaves, Ralph. Imagine, let's say, they go 8-4 and four or 7-5, and five, and he says, you know what, we tried our best, it didn't work out, I'm going to go to the NFL. 
what does that say for his legacy? To me, that's a permanent mark on your legacy, no matter what you do in the NFL. Even if you go and win two Super Bowls, you, you, you failed at Michigan. You didn't even beat Ohio State one time. You didn't even win one Big Ten championship. And you played for you know the coach who defined winning Big Ten championships in Bo Schembechler. That was everything for Michigan, winning the Big Ten and getting to the Rose Bowl. And Jim wouldn't have been able to do that. So I, I don't think that he's in a hurry to get out of there, even if it doesn't go well this year. And so I think it would it would take you know probably multiple really disappointing seasons for you know some real action to be taken there on the school side. And then I think for for him, you know, he's probably more determined than ever to get this thing right because. You know, he's built this team. He's built this coaching staff. He talked in the offseason how, uh, how the staff was the best that he's had at Michigan. I know there's been questions about the composition of his staff, essentially from the moment he arrived in Ann Arbor. Uh, you know, so you know, th- th- those things are all, are all out there. Um, how, how is he going to fix this? I think that's where the effort goes. And you know, I, I just I guess someone who's covered the Big Ten for a long time, I know you have too. The thing that bothers me about Michigan is – um, you know, I see teams in this conference, and Wisconsin's a great example, maybe the best example, you know, that don't have the most talent that win big games, including games away from home. Michigan State's a great example. Iowa has been an example. Northwestern recently has been an example. So Michigan, which I would say is almost never below third in the league in terms of talent, why, what's lacking from a mental standpoint? Is it just that these, all, all these, these big game failures have piled up into the self-fulfilling prophecy as somebody told me this week, or, or is it something else? That's, that's, uh, that, that, that's one thing that, uh, that has to be addressed. Uh, yeah, maybe an identity crisis to a certain degree. Uh, you know, again, and, and I'll wrap it up here with this is there is no program in the country that understands its identity and is more self-aware than Wisconsin. And I felt like that was what was on display on Saturday, you had a, a, a program that absolutely knows what it wants to be and does everything in its power to be what it what it intends to be. Right. It, it, it has a absolute failure proof blueprint that has been established over 20 odd years with Barry Alvarez, whereas Michigan is searching. Is a, is a program searching for an identity, and when you get those two things on the field together, you get 35 nothing at halftime. So I want to take a quick break here, Adam, and then we're going to start looking ahead to this weekend and talk about some other things in the news. We're talking with Adam Rittenberg, the great ESPN National College Football writer on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast, and we'll be back right after this. The AP Top 25 College Football Podcast is presented by Regions Bank. And we're back on the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. I'm with Adam Rittenberg from ESPN. So let's fast forward to uh, news of the week and the news of the day. We're recording this on Tuesday afternoon. The news of yesterday really was some strange news coming out of the University of Houston with De'Eric King, a very talented quarterback uh, and one of uh, Houston's leading receivers, you know, coming out and saying they were going to sit out the rest of the season. They've only played four games, so with the new rule implemented last year, they'll be able to redshirt, preserve their eligibility, and you would have assumed the the next part of that sentence would have been transfer to another school. (laughs) But no, as of right now, what King and uh, Keith Corbin are saying is that they're going to hang out at Houston, not play, redshirt, and come back and play for the Cougs and, uh, and Dana Holgerson next year. That's weird, Adam. What, what do you think is going on there? Yeah, it is weird. I mean, clearly there's some issues going on in this locker room and, and, and perhaps with the new coaching staff, Dana Olgerson coming in 
taking over for Major Applewhite. And you know, Houston's obviously off to a tough start. They had a really tough schedule with Oklahoma and Washington State, and I think an improved two-lane team as we saw, you know, a bunch of weekday games. It's just been odd, the whole start to the season. And then you have they have this news, which was, again, you know, not surprising that he was entering the portal and maybe going to transfer because we've seen this the last couple of years since the redshirt rule was put in on a struggling team, even though he was healthy, that wasn't completely outlandish. But this idea of, oh, no, I'm going to stick around for the rest of the year and, and possibly just reboot in 2020 uh, you know, as a final season to try to improve my, my pro stock um, is, is interesting. And, again, I think a lot of us immediately think there's no way Derek King and maybe Corbin will be back next year. But who knows? Uh, I guess it depends on how this, the rest of this season goes and you know, how, how your younger quarterback develops under Dana Holgerson. I think a lot of us just assume that, uh, that, that King will end up uh, winning a Heisman Trophy at Oklahoma next year <laughs> right. for Lincoln Riley, given the success he's had with, with transfers. So you know, we'll, we'll, I think it'll be very interesting to see if this is a trend on some of the, the struggling teams. You know, if you have a prominent player or two who have the ability to either redshirt and or transfer up, uh, in a sense, and, and improve their stock if they decide to shut it down. But I, I would be very curious just to see and hear what uh, Derek King's teammates think of this. I mean, he's their leader. He's been their star. He's been their everything at quarterback. And now he's essentially saying, okay, guys, go get him. I'll be hanging out here on the sideline during games and supporting you guys, but I'm not going to be playing. Um, it just seems like a, a recipe for some, some fracturing in that locker room, especially with the new coaching staff. So there, there's a lot here uh, to unpack, and I, I think it'll be really interesting to see if this is you know, kind of an offshoot of the trend that we saw last year of a number of players, you know, using this red shirt rule to, to move forward. Yeah, and I just I should also say that I, I, I believe I heard a King and Holgerson are going to be having a, a news conference later Tuesday, which is today. But we're we're taping this before they have talked, so we'll they'll, they may provide a little insight uh, on this decision. The one thing that Holgerson has said to a lot of folks, I saw him in Newport, and he repeated it to me: "Is I wish I had this kid for another year." You know, I, I'm so upset that we they didn't redshirt him one year. And you yeah, remember, King also played receiver a lot of his first two years at Houston before he became a full-time quarterback last year. So it does lead down the path of maybe they talked it out and said, listen, if you're in my system for another year, I can make you a better quarterback and one that maybe – is more desirable to NFL teams because I really do think at the beginning of this year, as an NFL prospect, I think King was still being looked at as more of a possible running back slash receiver type player. I also right. would I also would throw this out at you, Adam. Derek King is five eleven and one hundred ninety five pounds, and that might be a stretch. All right, yeah. I wonder how many players who fit his body type, who are quarterbacks and his athleticism are now thinking to themselves, wait a second, I can be Kyler Murray. I can play quarterback in the NFL and be a guy who can be drafted because that player who I am is now just was just the number one overall draft pick. So I, I do wonder if De'Ara King and Kyler Murray has started a trend for players, smaller quarterbacks who have you know, terrific skill sets, but not necessarily co- traditional quarterback bodies are looking at their path to the NFL and saying, no, 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 no. I- I'm not switching positions. I'm going to learn this position even better, and I'm going to get myself drafted. 
Yeah, I mean, it certainly could be possible. I just think the, the dynamics are, it's not as clean as it sounds in my mind. You oh, know? sure. Uh, no doubt. No doubt. <laughs> and, 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 and now, you know, in talking to Dana Holgerson at the, you know, the spring meetings that we all attend out in Arizona, um, he really likes you know, the quarterback who's stepping in. The young guy is it Clayton Toon. I think yeah, I'm hopefully correcting that yep, right. Toon. So, so, so what if Toon goes on and has a terrific season and they win a bunch of games? You're just going to say, well, okay, well, now you'll redshirt <laughs> or you'll sit out in 2020 so that Derek can come back and be the leader and, and, and help his NFL stock. I, I think you're just setting yourself up for problems that way. Um, and, you know, again, I know they've talked this out and we'll hear what they have to say, but I, I just see a lot of uh, stumbling blocks. But to your larger point, absolutely. I think the definition of a quarterback has changed uh, for, for players, for college coaches, for NFL scouts, and for NFL personnel folks. They have to look at that position very differently after what we've seen, we've seen the last few years and who's been selected number one in, in the NFL draft. So, uh, yeah, I, I'm, I'm curious to see if others, you know, of that stature and, and, and profile end up going this route and how their coaches and their programs deal with it. You know, I, just get back to Clay Helton, I will say, and you and I talked about this in L.A., it is really refreshing how Clay looks at the transfer portal. I think a lot of these coaches – are kind of I, I, I use the word vindictive. There's other words you could use cynical about the portal, but you know Clay has says, hey, you know what? We'll support you if you want to go into the portal, and if you want to come back, we'll support you as well. And, and maybe this is you know kind of a way of doing that if you're Dana Holgerson. I, I, I guess I hope that more coaches are at least um, accepting of the reality that this redshirt rule has put into the game and and, and the, the 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 control the greater control I think we'd all say that players are taking over uh, taking of their own careers you know and the other I think larger trend here because I talked uh, briefly a uh, message with Joseph Duarte who is the great reporter uh, from Houston uh, the Chronicle who broke the story initially yesterday covers the Cougs you know he framed this as, as almost like college tanking to a certain degree there's a sort of a recognition there that like our defense is really not good. And if we can bring these key offensive players back for next year where, and I have a year if you're Holgerson to sort of fix the defense and recruit a little bit more and just fix everything around like, boy, we could be really good next year. And I do wonder again, I don't, I don't see this as something that could happen on a broad scale, but I also do wonder how many coaches will look at that, Look at what Houston is seemingly doing and get to four games and all of a sudden, and to a certain degree, they're already doing this, I'm, I'm sure. If, in other words, if you're one in three after four games, maybe you've lost a tough conference game and say, you know what, I'm going to pull back a little bit here. And it will be interesting to see if there are veterans who maybe a coach can go to and say, listen, why don't we save this year for you? Come back, you know, you know, you stay in the system. You preserve this year. You've only been here, for, you know, three years anyway. You haven't redshirted yet. It's a fascinating way to use this rule that I wonder if more coaches look at and think with veteran players. Hey, you've played four games. Let's shut it down. Come back next year, and we'll really be ready to roll. Yeah, oof is right. Oof is right. It's a tough thing to sell in your locker room. I mean, this is the big difference. I would say is well, there's a couple differences between college tanking and pro tanking. You know, college tanking, they're not getting uh, seven figure salaries, so you know those guys can still play for a paycheck. I I just wonder what 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 type of message does that send to your seniors who you who you've said, listen, I know I wasn't the coach who recruited you, but I appreciate you for staying with me and playing for me and, and playing this last season. 
you know, now what are those guys thinking? What, what are the yeah. seniors? At no, that's true. Thinking that's right true. It, it would be a really tough sell because, again, how do you and how do you recruit that way too? And how does that not get used recruiting against you? There's a whole bunch of stuff going on here that's that's pretty fascinating as far as beyond just what how it affects the Houston program and how these rules are being manipulated. The you know who's a quarterback and things along those lines. And who knows? You know, the fact of the matter is, come January. Garrett King and Keith Corbin could very well be in the portal, and they might just be putting a good face on this thing. You know, to a certain degree, Holgerson and the coaches there might have said, listen, where are you going right now? Both of these kids in their statement said that they were still working on their degrees, so they're not graduates yet. I think Kelly Bryant had finished his degree last year because he was an early entry. I think he was all done even before the season started. I'm not 100% sure on that, but so, you know, maybe Holgerson and the and the staff sit the kids down and say, "Listen, you got to finish up your degree anyway. Stay here, sit tight for a while, see what happens in January. You can still enter the portal, find yourself a place to play, and everybody moves on and is happy. But why don't we just sit tight right now and see what happens over the next couple of months? It won't hurt you." I I, I imagine that conversation probably went on too. Yeah, no, I mean, I, and it, it'll be. Uh, I, I just think it's going to be so interesting that the uh, what, what, what kind of what they say and then, and then what happens over the next few weeks and and we hear, as we hear from other players and uh, either at Houston or around the country to see if this is just a, a, a unique case where you have a, a really good player with a new coach and the opportunity to um, you know get better in the program without playing or or whether it's something that spreads elsewhere. Okay, so let me hit you with another topic here. Last week I felt like was a little bit of a, a pretenders contenders weekend. We yeah. we established that Wisconsin looks like they could sort of be a, a playoff disruptor. Well, let me pull back one extra step here. We know Alabama and Clemson are on are on tier one. It looks like Georgia, Ohio State, and Oklahoma are tier one B or tier two. And we've been sort of looking for who are the other schools here, the other teams that might be able to infiltrate this playoff. Or we are we just look, excuse me, and LSU clearly is LSU, now in yeah. that group too, along with Ohio State and Georgia. Are there anybody else out there? Well, Wisconsin seems to have established itself as a possible playoff disruptor. I think Notre Dame acquitted itself in a way that at least makes me think that their playoff hopes aren't dead after Georgia. I think Texas, by sort of vanquishing the demon that was Oklahoma State, was pretty impressive, only in the sense that Oklahoma State had been dominating Texas for years. And so, again, sort of getting that monkey off its back. And I think Auburn, to a certain degree, coming out of that Texas A&M trip, established itself as a possible disruptor. Who else? Who else could possibly, in your mind, could possibly move into that category of that tier two or three, depending on how you want to uh, stack up the first two tiers, uh, of possible playoff contenders? Ooh, you know, I mean, we, I think we can write off Florida. I, I've had my doubts about Florida, you know, even after last year, even after they beat Michigan handily in the Peach Bowl. And, you know, they showed at least the, the, the first start for Kyle Trask, replacing Felipe Franks is very impressive now against a you know overmatched Tennessee team that's in kind of crisis mode as a program right now. But I wouldn't uh, I wouldn't write off Florida. I will find out more in the coming weeks. I, I I've been really impressed with Auburn. I know they're already in that tier as you mentioned, but you know, we'll see how they they can continue this against I think maybe the toughest schedule in the country or one of the top five toughest schedules. They have to go to Florida, and that's going to be a very revealing game one way or the other. You know, I, I would still look, um, you know, 
at, at a team like Oregon. And I know the Pac-12 is taking heed. And even though it's been, I think, a, a solid start in some ways for that conference, you know, they lost to Auburn in the final minute down at uh, Jerry's World game I was at. And I used to look at them and see all the talent that they, they have. And they have the quarterback and they have the offensive line and they're flying around on defense. Andy Avalos has done a nice job with that unit. You know, I don't know if there's a path for them, but, but maybe there is if they can, you know, somehow run the table and get some help elsewhere. I just don't see anybody out of the ACC. Uh, you know, Penn State, maybe, uh, Ralph. I, I, you know, again, it's too soon to tell with them, but if they can go to Maryland on a Friday night, uh, a team that we've seen that can score some points, Penn State's very good on defense, especially along the defensive line in their front seven. If they can win that game and, and, and generate a little bit of buzz, you know, they're, they're a team that I would pay attention to, and, and maybe even Iowa in the Big Ten West. They're going to have some opportunities beginning next week at Michigan to kind of validate uh, that themselves. I don't know if there's another team out, out of the Big 12 that I'd put in that category as a potential playoff buster other than Texas, in a sense, behind Oklahoma. I, a TCU lost this past week to SMU. and uh, Sonny Dykes off to a really good start there for, for the Mustangs. Iowa State already lost to Iowa and hasn't looked uh, you know overly great, although they were impressive this past weekend. So, yeah, I, I, I don't know. I think that's probably it, right? Uh, you know, we're putting Notre Dame in that second tier and Texas and, and Auburn and, and some of those teams. It's just hard to find anybody that would, would, would crack the, those, those first two or three groups. I don't know. Maybe I'm, I'm probably just holding out hope over a, uh, a, a preseason prediction because you kind of want to be right. But I still, <laughs> I still find myself thinking Washington could go on a run here. You know, this is two years in a row they've lost to Cal, and maybe Cal is just sort of their kryptonite. And we'll get an idea this weekend because, you know, again, as we saw in L.A., I think you put it best, and I think I stole your term in talking to somebody else. USC does not play clean, right? They are not a clean team. And what I mean by that is they, they penalties and mistakes, and one play they look great on defense on the next play, like they're all over the place and they're giving up huge, huge runs. But there is certainly talent there. So USC-Washington becomes a really fascinating game this weekend on several levels for USC. But I could, I don't know, I could just see Washington. They've been really impressive in their other games against lesser competition. And that is that a team that could still just sort of take off here, not lose again, be sitting there at 12-1 and at the end of the season to at least make an argument? to get into the playoff or to at least sort of be in the playoff discussion down the road, they'll Oregon and Washington will play. And maybe that becomes a really huge PAC 12 game. I think if you're in the PAC 12, that's what you're hoping for right now is that you have Oregon and Washington kind of separate from the rest of the league and can roll into that game, both sort of looking at each other as a possible playoff contender. So that's the only other one that sort of I throw out there. But again, that might be me sort of justifying what I thought in the previous <laughs> we never do that, Ralph. Come on. No, that, that's a, uh, that's but, a no, good you're, point. Yeah, you're, you're right. The, the concern I have for Washington, honestly, is that they have a home loss already. Um, and, and it could be a very good home loss with Cal in the top 15. And Justin Wilcox is doing a terrific job. They don't really have an opportunity to impress on the road. You know, their remaining games of significance are, are really at home, beginning this week with USC. Then they have Oregon coming in on October 19th, Utah coming in on November 2nd and then Washington State for the Apple Cup on the 29th. Uh, so really their only you know, tough road game could be you know, Colorado. Stanford just doesn't look very good right now, and I guess that could turn around. But 
you know, that game against Colorado on November 23rd uh, is one that, that might jump out, but is that enough? It, it, gosh, I mean, you, you really have to have chaos in the SEC. You'd have to have maybe a surprise loss uh, by a Clemson or an Oklahoma a team like that, and nobody else really step up in those conferences to even make way because you know, Washington didn't have a premier non-conference game. Their best win is against BYU, and it was an impressive win on the road, but you know, that doesn't jump out as much as you know Auburn beating uh, an Oregon or, or you know, LSU beating Texas on the road. That's that's something that's really going to impress the committee. So I, I don't know. We'll, we'll find out. I think it, you know, Washington's really going to need – so will Oregon. But Washington's really going to need the Pac-12 to to perform and, and to have at least a number of teams in the committees, you know, top 20, top 25, to even justify a, a chance to get in, I think. Okay, last one here, and then we'll wrap it on up, is Jonathan Taylor went off against Michigan. He has been terrific. He has been absolutely terrific in three games. He has put up the best numbers in the country for running back. Well, actually, has he put up the best numbers? I'm going to check the leaderboards here just so I'm not (laughs) slighting anyone. Well, yeah, uh, yeah, right. Chuba Hubbard is actually leading the, the nation in rushing. But so far, Taylor's at 146 yards per game, and he's, he sat out most of the first two games because they were so good. He scored about nine or ten touchdowns. My point is, Jonathan Taylor is sort of in the Heisman mix. We knew he was going to be in the mix to a certain degree, most likely coming into the season. He's going to be pushing some all-time. He's going to be pushing his way up the all-time rushing list, list only in his third season. But in this day and age of quarterbacks like Tua, and Joe Burrow, uh, Trevor Lawrence, Jalen Hurts. I mean, Tua and Joe Burrow have already have 17 touchdown passes apiece in four games. Is there even a path for running back to win this award these days? It's only happened twice since 2000. It was Derrick Henry uh, one year out of Alabama, Mark Ingram, and I believe it was 2009, and Henry, and I believe it was 2014 or 15 so only two Alabama running backs it's been nothing but quarterback since is there a path to a running back winning this award and what does that path look like I think it looks like having a number of those quarterbacks start to struggle and and there's just there's so many that are in that Heisman conversation at least right now I mean you're talking about Tua Tungabailoa for sure Uh, Joe Burrow absolutely for sure he's top of my Heisman uh, watch list for ESPN.com um, you know, Justin Fields is in that conversation. Jalen Hurts, absolutely in that conversation. Sam Ellinger from Texas is in that conversation. So all those quarterbacks are either ahead or in the company of Jonathan Taylor, and that's what makes it so hard just in any year for a running back. But having so many of those guys, you have to outshine. You know, and the history, as you mentioned, Ralph, of this becoming a quarterback award, that's the problem. Now, the one thing that I think will help Jonathan Taylor is for any running back to win this, and you mentioned it, that the two that have won it, uh, you know, since Ron Dane, uh, Wisconsin running back in 99, were the two Alabama players. And that's because Alabama is always a team of relevance. They're always a team that's in the national title discussion or the playoff conversation. And so it's imperative in my mind that Wisconsin remains in that conversation and has that season that maybe a lot of people thought they'd have in 2018, and it didn't go uh, well for them, or at least up to their standard. But if they can continue to win... You know, they have Ohio State on the schedule. They have Iowa on the schedule. And you know, those are opportunities to, to just to show everybody how, how great Jonathan Taylor is. And he really is. And I, I, I was flying back from L.A., uh, as I'm sure you were at the same time on Saturday, and just kind of following that game. And I, I just tweeted it. You know, people should, should appreciate Jonathan Taylor. He's not just 
the next in line at Wisconsin. If, if, if this keeps up, if, if his pace and production continues this year, he's going to have one of the best three-year totals for a running back ever in college football. So you are witnessing one of the all-time greats, at least in terms of production. Now, is it going to translate to Heisman's and all these national awards and a national title at Wisconsin? Who knows? But uh, I, I think we all need to at least uh, appreciate what, we, what we're seeing from, from Taylor because he, he's been uh, just outstanding. And I've, I've seen a lot of good Wisconsin running backs, but this guy, uh, in terms of his big playability, is, is unlike anyone I've, I've seen up there, uh, you know, at least in this incredible run they've had. Right. I think the, the keys for him to, to possibly make a run at this, and no pun intended, is well, and just to think that we, we mentioned all those quarterbacks and didn't even mention Trevor Lawrence. And I had a feeling this could happen with Lawrence, that he could end up being sort of forgotten because Clemson's just going to be rolling along, not necessarily playing a lot of big games, and his numbers are going to end up being sort of like held back by that. But that's a different yeah. that's a different set of circumstances. I think, as you, you said, play on a team that can contend for the playoff, but also be Taylor's story is going to be one of Wisconsin is going to sell him as he is the focus of our team, right? He is the guy who carries us in a way that no other running back is expected to carry a team because we are a modest passing team with Jack Cohen at quarterback. And that's not to knock Cohen, but listen, this, that, that he's not Tua or any of these other guys. So in some ways, it's the story behind Taylor. And I also do wonder if Taylor's greatness over three years and just what you said he will leave college after three years presumably as one of the greatest most productive college running backs of all time and if some ways that can lift him in the eyes of voters it's not supposed to be a career award but trust me some voters will absolutely take that into account I don't know if that will be enough I I hardly I kind of doubt it will be enough but it'll be interesting to see if if the components of his story linger long long enough to get him into the mix. It's super early, but as of right now, you have Burrow at the top of your list? I do. I don't have the full list in front of me, but it's some combination of Burrow, uh, Tua, Taylor, Hertz, and I think I had either Ellinger or Fields in this past year. I think Ellinger, with his big game against Oklahoma State, may have made it in, but Fields could. uh, He's in that that conversation, and you know, uh, we'll, we'll see if others, you know, Jake Fromm may work his way in. But right now, th- those five are, are on my list. Adam Rittenberg from ESPN. Hey, man, I really appreciate the time, the great info, the interesting conversation. I said good seeing you in Los Angeles, and hopefully we will cross paths again at a press box real soon. Well, that, Ralph, it's great to uh, be on with you. I, I love this podcast and, and hope to do it again and see you again soon. And now, three and out. First down. A couple days ago, one of the best high school quarterbacks in the class of 2020, Bryce Young from Modern Day in Southern California, decommitted from USC and flipped to Alabama. That means the two highest rated quarterbacks in California in the coming signing class are going to Clemson and Alabama. Now, the Trojans picked up a 2021 commitment from another SoCal quarterback the next day. But I feel like this is another part of a troubling, shall we call it a trend? Can we call it a trend for the Pac-12? Right now, seven of the top 20 recruits in California, according to 247 Sports, are committed to schools outside the Pac-12. 
there are another three that seem to be strong leans toward non-Pac-12 schools, and another couple who experts at 247 think could land at Oklahoma. One recruiting class is not necessarily a reason to panic, but after being in California last week and talking to some folks about these, again, whether you want to call them trends or developments, there definitely seems to be a growing sentiment among top players out there that if they want to compete against the very best, they have to leave the Pac-12. This might be a blip, but it's an unsettling blip if you're associated with the Pac-12 considering all the other signs of trouble for that conference when it comes to football. Second down. I have to admit, I always find myself being a little skeptical of Notre Dame's ability to sustain success. It's probably a byproduct of having lived through the Davey, Whittingham, Weiss days. Oddly, nobody in the media has defended and touted the job Brian Kelly has done with the Iris as much as or more than I have. Simply put, I think Kelly is one of the top coaches in the sport. Definitely in that next group, once you get past the likes of Nick Saban, Devil Sweeney, and the currently retired Urban Meyer. I say all that because I find myself looking at the Notre Dame-Virginia game in South Bend this weekend and wondering if the Irish are due for a letdown against a pretty good team with a dynamic quarterback. Notre Dame acquitted itself quite well in a loss to Georgia. The Irish also showed again that there is a clear gap between them and and the truly elite programs, it was no surprise. I think the key for Notre Dame is winning games like this one against Virginia to establish that while Notre Dame is not in the first tier of college football playoff contenders, it is clearly in that second tier. Notre Dame fans probably don't want to hear that, but my sense is the best Notre Dame can be is a consistent 10-win program that every now and then sneaks into the playoff. Kelly looks like he has Notre Dame at that point. Beating the likes of Virginia is what will keep the Irish there. Third down. That crazy Pac-12 after dark game last week sparked a lot of talk about whether this was a turning point for Chip Kelly at UCLA. I kind of hope so. I think Kelly getting his groove back at UCLA would be an intriguing story. Not that the demise of Kelly wouldn't be fascinating as well. But while what happened last week in Pullman was crazy fun, it's impossible to know if it was an outlier. The Bruins have another Pac-12 after dark slot this weekend at Arizona. The Wildcats defense has been one of the worst in the country. If last week really was a turning point or at least a sign that Kelly's team is heading in the right direction, it should be able to carry over some of that success in Tucson. That's the show for today. I'd like to thank my producer, Warren Levinson, for making me sound good. You can find this podcast at Apple Podcast and on Podcast One. Please subscribe so you do not miss an episode. I'm Ralph Russo, the college football writer with the Associated Press. Thanks for listening and come back for more next week of the AP Top 25 College Football Podcast. The AP Top 25 College Football Podcast was presented by Regions Bank.